One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What one is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good right. luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. You're very welcome to the show and I'm glad you've joined us because I really need your help. I've got a bit of a dilemma and you, my beloved second captains of the Irish Times listener, are the only person who can help me with it. There I was, floating through the early part of this week looking forward to the weekend when mm. not one but two of my favourite sports teams were in action going to be in action against fierce rivals but this morning I spent some time doing some detailed research and found out that both Leinster versus Munster and Dublin versus Mayo are on the exact same time detailed research basically checking what well, time kickoff. it was a bit of a case of the last horse cross the finish line Murph <laughs> but uh, it was a bit wrapped up in other things what do I do is a question right option number one attend the dubs Record the rugby on TV for later. Mm-hmm. Option two, reverse that order. <laughs> Adding in the rider that the Viva is sold out. Yeah. So try and pull some It's kind of interesting favors. that they can play two matches like that at the same time. It's ridiculous. No, it, it's just three. in the city, you know, from the, from the point of view of the... I mean, don't run out Croke Park, right? I yeah. mean, what's the crowd expected to be for that? Well, with if it's Mayo, Mayo will bring a big, big crowd. You're probably talking about 25,000, maybe. So two huge crowds mm. simultaneously on either side of the city. That's... A lot of police overtime. <laughs> I have it's a good day for Ankara yeah. Shikana. Uh, yeah. <laughs> a very welcome uh, good <laughs> day to the for the boys of blue. It's wonderful. <laughs> the, the only boys of blue that are guaranteed <laughs> a victory <laughs> on Saturday evening are the members of Ankara Shikana. I haven't got to my option three yet. Option three? Okay. Stay at home. Watch one on TV and the other online. But then there are these two amazing sporting events going on very near, within walking distance from my house. It would be a long walk to the Viva Stadium from my house, but mm. I could get to Croker on foot. That swings at Murph. I'll cycle to Croke Park. Yeah. That's not on foot, strictly. But. <sighs> I, listen, you know, I kind of feel like... There's been a lot like, of rugby lately. A lot of rugby. I can yeah. give Leinster, Munster and Mason catch it later on. Yeah, you're probably right. I mean, there has actually been a lot of rugby. So you're, you're going to go to Croke Park. I mean, I, you know, I should support that. But, you know, if I, I, I'm now presented with the same choice. Two sporting events on my doorstep. I think I'm probably going to go to the rugby. I can't but I mean, you know, like I don't have I don't have an inter-county... You know, uh, uh, you know, horse in this race, effectively. I'll probably have to wait to see. I'm sure, now that I put it out there, there's bound to be a flood of 
um, responses to my query here. Mm. I mean, yeah, if well, I get if I get one tweet basically on this subject, yeah. and if that tweet tells me to do something, I will. Yeah, if you feel strongly uh, enough that's about that, all my David, everybody. <laughs> if you tweet away there, uh, yeah, I mean, if break if, the Twitter sphere, I'm sure. Yeah, of course. I mean, if 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 just remember, I mean, if you do tweet on on this subject, he will do exactly what you tell him to do. Today, we're going to focus on the football. We had Jerry Thorny and Alan Quinnan in studio on Monday to chat about the rugby. So today, we will talk football. Ushi McConville, Carl Mannion and the Dublin-Mayo rivalry specifically, because I think this is developing into an absolutely superb rivalry. Semi-finalists last uh, two years ago, All-Ireland semi-finalists, both of them, a match in which Mayo won. Uh, last year, Dublin beat Mayo in the All-Ireland final. Again, detailed research I've done on both of these mm. games. And I've come to the conclusion that these could be the two best teams in the country for the next few years. Way yeah. to alienate all Kerry, Cork, Tyrone. Well, I, I don't think you're alienating anyone. Donegal listeners. Yeah, I don't think you're alienating anyone. I think uh, everyone has been very impressed by how Donegal are moving, uh, even though it is Division 2. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the whole idea of Donegal was, if you can cast your mind back, you know, 12 months, we did think that Donegal, you know, stood poised on an era, uh, you know, on, on the cusp of an era of unprecedented dominance in, in uh, the Gaelic football. So. Well, maybe you didn't, but... I was 100% convinced they weren't going to back it up. Were you? Yeah, I just thought, it's so hard to do it. I, and Dublin might be better positioned to do it this year because it's not the first ever or the first in a long time. Mm. It's just an All-Ireland win. It's so hard for counties to do it. And Donegal didn't strike me as any better prepared for it. I think they fell into all the traps that everybody else does of mm. just how you are in the aftermath of an yeah. All-Ireland win. Well, you said last week that Dublin and Clare are both going to retain their All-Ireland titles. Yeah. <laughs> well, I all had a look at his face there that said, did, did I? I? He, Murph seems pretty sure about this. Maybe <laughs> I maybe I better aquarium. Uh, Murph, if I was to ask you where and with whom you watched the great sports documentary Hoop Dreams. Ah, I would say at half nine in the morning in my house with one Mr. Owen McDevitt. That's correct. Because we were preparing to talk to Steve James later that day. Mm. Is that right? That's correct, yeah. We have Steve James on the show again to talk about another brilliant movie. Hoop Dreams is one of the greatest of all time. I think it's in almost everybody's top yeah. five, top ten. This could be the best sports documentary ever made. The His latest uh, movie is superb. It's a very different type of show. It's called Head Games, The Global Concussion Crisis. It's not just an American football problem. More and more studies are coming out saying even repetitive headers are damaging the brain. When you scan a soccer player's brain, it no longer looks like the average person. Peewee hockey today is not the peewee hockey we played when we were kids. The level of violence would give a reasonable person pause. Rugby aficionados say you can't compare rugby with NFL. Research done shows that there is a slightly higher incidence of concussion in rugby than there is in American football. This is a public health issue. Yes, there are some things happening at the professional level, but what if similar things are happening for kids? Personally, if I had a six-year-old out there playing football, I would be freaked out, and I think rightly so. Because you're, you're playing Russian roulette with their future. Yeah, it's a, it, you can get the sense there that there's, it's a, there's a brief potted history of concussion in America, but the main focus, uh, which isn't totally clear in the trailer, is on sports more familiar to us. A lot of the newer stuff is actually more interesting. He travelled over for last year's Six Nations, for example. It was at Scotland, Wales. It was at uh, Ireland, France. 
in which Brian O'Driscoll appeared to have a concussion and came back on towards the end. There was a terrible concussion in the Scotland-Wales game. There's also plenty in the growing issues in soccer. It's really good stuff. It's not necessarily a definitive guide to the medical science behind concussion, but it does do a really good job in putting a human face on the issue. So well worth uh, a chat with Steve James a little bit later on. Yeah, uh, and uh, sorry, no, just yeah. you were mentioning Hoop Dreams there. Uh, and it is obviously brilliant, but his Alan Iverson documentary for the ESPN 30 for 30, no crossovers, the Alan Iverson story, is brilliant. It's in the top three of the 30 for 30s, and it's obvious you're in the hands of a master. So it's a big deal to be speaking to Steve, Steve James today. Let's talk Dublin Mayo. Oshie McConville is on the line and Carl Mannion is in studio. Carl, thanks very much for popping in. No problem, Mark. Dublin Mayo, or Mayo Dublin, whatever way you want to look at it, is this developing into... Uh, or could this develop into the key rivalry in Gaelic football the next few years? Yeah, it certainly has the makings of one on... Uh I think for it to fully develop though and to become like uh, a rivalry that we'll be talking about in 20, 30 years time I think Mayo have to win Non-Ireland uh, if you look at rivalries that are, have been very strong in the, the GEA the last number of years you obviously have Dublin Kerry since the 70s both those teams are winning Non-Irelands in provincial context you have Armagh Tyrone were both winning provincials and Non-Irelands that would turn into a massive rivalry and still is uh, within Leinster you have Dublin Meads all as a big rivalry because they're all winning provincial titles regularly uh, yeah so Dublin Mayo like it is has the makings of one they've played in some big big games going back to obviously the uh, the All-Ireland semi-final in 2006 when Mayo took Dublin's big, big scalp in Dublin and then the last few years when they bet them uh, two years ago uh, before they played 21 in the All-Ireland final and then last year obviously in the final so there's been some big games but I think for it to be a fully fledged rivalry where it's a lot of hatred and everything I think Mayo have to have the respect and the position of being All-Ireland champions at some stage yeah, I think the hatred point is interesting because there are different things that define a rivalry. One of them is that sort of thing, the idea that these teams don't like each other, the fans don't like each other. I don't know how the, the teams mm. get on. I, I know that it's the most polite rivalry between supporters that I've ever witnessed, Murph. It was as though the Dublin fans were wary of celebrating the All-Ireland last year. I was yeah, say, it was almost like commiserating straight away with the Mayo. Yeah, and, th- and that's the big thing. But I think the, the key word here is respect as well and that you have to earn the respect and, you know, whether it's, you know, hatred is probably a strong word, but... You know, you have to you, for it to be a true rivalry. You have to respect and also fear the other team. I'm sure, but I'm I don't. Sh- I don't think Dublin really fear Mayo because. Well, I'm sure they respect them. I mean, the match was well. Maybe they. Maybe they only do. a point in it last year. Mayo beaten the year before. These are two pretty evenly matched teams, no? Yeah, I think they are. I think that. Uh I think though Dublin just are moving on a little bit from Mayo, whether they're going to be matching up as tight this year now as they have in the last few years is questionable. Uh, I think though, to go back about the hatred point, I don't think Mayo are the kind of team that you have seen over the years that are getting very ratty, niggly, mm. nasty with teams on pitches. You don't see them going into rows like where there's maybe seven or eight of them piling in, not going in clipping people, mm. but like going in like, you know, separating things. And like, you don't, you don't really see that with that Mayo team. You would see with more at Dublin, they're a little more aggressive, they're a little more mouthy. Uh, and that's the reason that they maybe have the rivalries that involve a bit of hatred because they are not a nice team to play against. Whereas Mayo maybe haven't shown that, and that's maybe why that rivalry is never between Dublin and Mayo. O'Sheen, what do you think? Is is it a rivalry that is developing? Do you think? Yeah, I think it's going to develop. I think you know the strong seems to be get, seem to be getting stronger, and I suppose you put uh, both Mayo and Dublin in that category. I think uh, the only thing I feel about the last couple of years, I always felt that Dublin, especially in the All Ireland final last year. Had another game or two to go through if they really, really needed it against Mayo. It was almost like that thing with the supporters had, had gone through to the players that, okay, let's beat them, but let's not pummel them into the ground. They've had enough suffering through the years. But I think one of the things about um, about Mayo is that they're on the Napo Cove too. They're continuing to improve, and I think they will continue to improve. I think, you know, 
Dublin are the envy of every other. I've said this a couple of times now. Dublin are the envy of every other county because, you know, of the quality they have, uh, of the bench they have, and and as a result of that, you know, both of these teams are going to be, you know, here to stay over the next, you know, five six years. Both have had tremendous uh, minor teams who have, have done really really well. I think Cal makes a good point that if if Mayo really want this rivalry to, I suppose, to prosper over the next number of years. I, they need to have a little bit more development in them. They need to be the aggressor rather than the team that you know takes it and, and tries to fight back. But they need to actually be the aggressor. And this is a good opportunity. You know, then the next game is a good opportunity. So this weekend will be a good opportunity for that. Are they the two best teams in the country at the moment, Carl? I don't think so. No, I think Dublin. I think I think Dublin are in, in the top two. Uh, I think Mayo are question. I think Mayo have slipped back a little bit since last year. They've obviously changed the team around a little bit. Their performances in Division One have been good at times, but have been poor at times. Uh, I think just it's not because of maybe their own fault. I think the other teams are coming back up to them. I think Cork are coming back up. Uh, I think Donegal are going to be back up to that level again this year. So to say that they're certainly the best two teams, I think is questionable. I think uh, they're, but they're, they're, level they're in the next in, group. Yeah, they're level on points in the league, and Mayo have been consistent championship performers over yeah. the last couple of years, All Ireland finals. I know they haven't gotten over the mm. line. Are you reading a bit too much into a few league matches to say that they've slipped back a bit? Uh, I know. I think it's more so the fact that other teams I think are going to improve this year. I think Donegal just last year uh, fell off the radar a little bit uh, because of their exits the year before. Uh, I think Cork last year as well, just in Coonhans last year, maybe just we're coming to the end of that that kind of team's era. I think they're going to get stronger again this year. I just think the the rest of the crowd are coming back up to Mayo and I uh, in that second group behind Dublin because I think Dublin are ahead of everyone else and I don't think Mayo are in Dublin's level at level just yet. Yeah, there is, there is a question as well. I think everyone is asking it. You know, to lose two All Ireland finals in a row, to try and get back to a third All Ireland final in a situation like that, where you know all of that pressure, just the pressure from the previous two years, forgetting about everything else, this Mayo team with James Horan, I mean, it's a big, big ask to get back to to an All Ireland. It, it is, Kieran. I do think though they are a very special group of players. Like I would have seen it from playing against them, and just obviously being close to them there in Connacht, they are a very special, unique bunch of players. Like, and if they come back from even the first All Ireland loss to go very, very close next year and almost win it again. That shows something like they have something in there that I think they can come back again this third year. But I just think there'll be more players at the top table this year against them, and it mightn't be as smooth a run through for the final for them. Oshin, are these the difficult months when, uh, for a county like Mayo, who've been striving and getting so close to the All Ireland? I'd say they'd love to be fast forwarding through the Connacht Championship and into an All Ireland semi final and be nearly back there again. But you have to put the grind in, you have to do all these things again, and there's got to be that doubt in their head about whether it's all going to be worth it at the end of September. Yeah, and I think that's the frustration. The frustration is that they they will waltz through a, a, a Connacht title. The two boys are there from Roscommon and Galway, but they will waltz through an, another Connacht title. I think, uh, in my opinion, they are far and away the best two teams in the country, both Mayo and Dublin. I think uh, what Mayo have done early on in the league with, with uh, I suppose, a fragmented panel for most of the time has has been has been pretty good, has been pretty impressive. They've got Killian O'Connor back, they've got the Caspar boys back. I think they probably will need to use more and uh, Barry Morn as probably an axis for that full forward line as as a pivotal point as a target man as a traditional target man, whatever way you want to put it. I think Mayo football has been crying out for somebody like that. I think since Andy Morn come back from his injury, he just he hasn't fulfilled that role of full forward. So I think they need somebody in that full forward role, and I think. He could be the man. I think I was. I was quite impressed. I know, okay, he was a little bit crowded out the last day, but 
I think you know he could be the man to fulfil that role. I don't think Mayo or I think Mayo only a player or two or two really and truly away from challenging the big teams like Dublin. And physically, like there's nobody better equipped to challenge this Dublin team than than, than Mayo are. And I think when you add those couple of other players in, when you add the quality of of Kevin O'Connor, if you can get back to you know where he was at, then uh, my opinion is that these two teams, you know, could you know kick on and be you know easily the top two teams in the country again this year. I guess the danger, Oshin, for counties who get so close so often is that you start thinking every year that you got everything wrong, you have to find a new plan. But it doesn't strike you that James Horn is the sort of manager necessarily to panic. Most of the things they're doing are obviously right, but there's there's just something there. Maybe it is just a couple of personnel switches or tactical switches that you're talking about there that, that could get them over the line. There's probably no need for them to panic. I don't think there's any need for them to panic. I played on a team probably quite similar to the Mayo team in that we sort of we tried for a lot of years to try and get over the lane. Okay, maybe four or five years we were really, you know, going wild before we actually won in all Ireland and I think, you know, it was only something small. I mean, okay, we, we did change our manager, you know, we took Joe in and stuff like that. But That's reassuring he, for James Horan to hear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well if you get a real knife in Galway today, I don't know what's wrong with you. Yeah. <laughs> or in, in Mayo, sorry, so that's that Galway coming out in you again. But no, uh, no. I think uh, I think one of the things about about James Horn is that he's been very measured in his approach. I think, you know, even after the All Ireland final last year, he was absolutely devastated. But his immediate thoughts seem to be, you know, will you come back next year? And and I think, you know, to to me they're like a team who 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 are saying to themselves, look, if we have to keep coming back, then we'll keep coming back until we are able to bang down that door. And I think, you know, as I say, uh, capabilities-wise, they are a team with, you know, a vast amount of, of, uh, of talent. As I say, they're probably the next best when it comes to rival in Dublin, when it comes to the panel that they have. But, you know, I think it's just, there's only a small few things. I think if there's one more real forward last year in that All-Ireland final. If Killian O'Connor had been at full strength, then they had that possibility of, of winning that game. Dublin always seemed to me, and, and as I said it very, very early in the conversation, they always seemed to me like a team that maybe has that other gear, but they don't always find us. And I think we found that um, when they were defending their title in 2012, that you know when they themselves thought they had that other gear, they couldn't find us. You know? And I think, you know, it is they are a superior, superbly talented outfit, but on days on days like uh, you know like that day, you know they don't seem to find it. And I think you know you see it with with Dave McConnelly a lot. He what a superb footballer, what an exhibition he gave in an All Ireland club final. But some days he doesn't do it, and when he doesn't, you know you, you take a look around you. Bernard Brogan doesn't do it. If those two players in particular, if, if Mayo were to take care of those two players in last year's final, I know it's easier said than done, but you know, really and truly, Mayo could have won that. Uh, could have won that final quite comfortably. Yeah, I, I actually would agree with Oshin on the point about Mayo needing just one or two more people up front to kind of push it on. Uh, the last two years where they have got to the finals, they have been missing people both years. Uh, their top players have had lo- have lost a bit of form as well over really one year or the other. So, you, for example, like two years ago, they didn't have Andy Moore in that summer. Uh, uh, Killian O'Connor last summer uh, Kevin McLaughlin would have lost a bit of form last year as opposed to his final against Donegal uh, Jason Doherty would have had a great year two years ago didn't have as much last year didn't get playing much uh, and Alan Freeman obviously for the final last year so uh, the, those accumulation of those players not all firing on, uh, in the, on the same day 
uh, has obviously hampered Mayo a lot and I think it's a big thing for Mayo that if all those players are all up to form and all playing well and fit then that gives them a huge chance It's almost like the Irish rugby team or any team which maybe doesn't have massive depth is that the issue there that if you're missing one or two I suppose any county who's missing yeah. their best players are going to struggle yeah, including I think, Dublin I think Mayo have actually have plenty of depth you know as the lads have said they've, and they've introduced players again in this uh, in this league that look well capable of, of contributing in the summertime it's the key guys, you know, and Killian O'Connor is just is so important to this Mayo Mayo team, and he's going to get more important. Andy Moore, and, uh, as you say, like having won a quarter final, pulling up against Down to lose him to a cruciate in twenty twelve. I mean, that was in many ways that was the season, that was the turning point for Mayo, mm. maybe in that entire season. So yeah, I mean, I it's it's not strength and depth isn't an issue, certainly not for Dublin, and it's not really for Mayo either. I don't think Dublin. Yeah, so Shane, you're trying to come in no, there. No, I just, uh, I just think that you look at Aidan O'Shea and Seamus O'Shea who played midfield for uh, for Mayo last year, for the majority of it. You look who they've brought in. They've brought in PJ Gibbons, and now they've got Barry Moore to bring in as well. They're four of the best midfielders in the country, you know, and they would get a game with probably any other county in the country, including Dublin. It's how you fit those four players into that team. So if you the only player I can see who, who who could possibly adapt and go into that forward line, um, well, obviously Barry Moore in the beginning would have already said that, but Aidan O'Shea may be able to play a role at centre-half forward and the other two boys may be in the middle of the field. I think, that would, to me, that would be a far stronger team than the team being out in the All-Ireland final last year. Yeah, uh, Ocean is right there about Aidan O'Shea. I think he's still a young enough midfielder as mature midfielders go. I think playing midfield, uh, the more you play there, the better you get. He's still a little bit immature as a midfielder, I think, for doing all the bread and butter duties. Uh, and I think Barry Moore and Shams O'Shea would be a better combination with Aidan O'Shea in a forward line uh, until maybe in a couple of years' time when Aidan O'Shea can move back out. At Dublin, Carl, we're all making the assumption that they're the best team in the country here, but they've lost a couple of games recently, Cork and to Derry. Mm. Uh, maybe even more damaging, damagingly, are there any cracks in the armor? Uh, I don't think they are. No, they're they're obviously playing a lot of new players. Like he's thrown in people that haven't got games before, like Kieran Redden, Cormac Costello, Sean George, uh, Davy Byrne from Ballymun. They're all getting in and getting game time, and I just strengthening the panel. That's all they're doing. Like they're they're surviving in Division One very capably. They'll probably get to a, a league semi final with this team, and it just goes to show like that Dublin could have a second team playing very easy in Division Two, if not in Division One as well. Like just the strength and depth is amazing. Oshin, any cracks? Talk Dublin down a little bit, please. Um, is there any cracks? Uh, no, I don't think there's. I don't think there's too many cracks. Uh, you know, we'd love to pick holes in it, but I think Jim Gavin has sort of has what he's done so far this year has been perfect because he's left a lot of players very hungry for football. I think he's introduced a couple of players who have been, you know, quite impressive, as, as Carol says. But also the fact that I mean, Dublin don't want to probably don't want to be you know, by far and away the best team in the league. They probably want to go into the championship. They're not going to go in on the radar, but you know what I mean, with question marks over them. And I think, you know, that's when Jim Gavin can has a stick to beat them with. And I think, you know, what he, what he's done over the last number of weeks, they will qualify for the league semi-final. They'll probably win the league and they'll probably win a Leinster championship quite easily. But, you know, the question mark is, is can they go back and can they put all Ireland's back-to-back that's when the question marks will come about. But unfortunately, Owen, I can't offer up any question marks for at least the next three to four months. <laughs> we'll come back to you in about yeah, three months. The one, the one big yeah. thing you could have maybe said about Dublin before was just like the mental state and the fragility, maybe up until they won the All Ireland two years ago, that were they eventually going to get over the line. They did get over the line. 
the the year after obviously the the hangover from the first All Ireland was there like and they weren't they weren't at their peak, but now like the mental state of that team has to be just so strong. They're so mature. They're not thinking of oh, we have to win All Ireland. It's our it's the, it's the first All Ireland. It's going to be great. This is like we're going to win titles now, lads. Let's let's put our let's cement our legacy. Mental state has to be very strong there. All right, listen, Carl. Great to have you in studio, Ocean. Great to talk to you. Thanks very much. Thank to you. See you. Andrew, that's the question that's going to be answered tonight. Tonight. So now, come here tonight, tonight, into Wexford Park, and they just must produce the goods tonight. Tonight, their team is better set up tonight. Tonight. But they just, the bottom line is, Michael, they have to do tonight. Tonight. Second Captains Football. Available on irishtimes.com, Second Captains, and iTunes from 6 p.m. tonight. Tonight, 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 tonight. All right, so I failed abysmally to dampen down the Dublin hype there. But you tried your best. You, you did try your best. You know the Mayo for Sam stuff is starting early this year? Oh. Have you seen this? Oh, yes. Okay, but please, uh, please well, enlighten us. Ken, I don't know if you've seen this yet, but uh, this got a lot of traction, this story this week in the national media. <laughs> Go on. Well, there was a coin, a two-euro coin, yeah. uh, found in the Blue Cafe in Arklow. With Arclo. a picture of the Virgin Mary on it. <laughs> Better again, Ken. Yeah. Found in the Blue Cafe in Arklow. Um... Sorry, what's the name of that cafe That's again? The Blue Cafe in Arklow. Oh, sorry, okay. That yeah. would be my girlfriend's mother's cafe. Yeah, sorry, the Blue. <laughs> sorry, just, just uh, Blue uh, Cafe. The blue, there, the blue. So if you're cafe, going along okay, the main okay. street there in Arklow, you just take a left turn up near the top. You'll see, you'll see the sign. It's a, okay. So there was a coin find in the Blue Cafe. In the Blue in Cafe in Arklow, yeah, emblazoned with Mayo for Sam. Uh, someone had engraved. Someone had engraved. Not engraved. Scratched it onto it. Scratched it onto on the, it. Yeah. On the front. Or the on back? the top. It was very ornate. It was like along the sort of the rim of the two euro coin. Very, very tasteful. Mayo though. News picked up on on the story. Right. It's going. It's running wild around Mayo at the but, moment. But what? Mm. Uh, what is the story exactly? Because that there was a coin found with Mayo. I've gone through all the details. But, but is, I mean, it's the idea that it, that it was that this Mayo for Sam was inscribed there by some divine power. No, no, I think it's probably a Mayo supporter. Probably, probably, probably a human, a Mayo, probably a human yeah. Mayo supporter. In which case, is there really anything that remarkable? I mean, not that Are I you? want. I mean, look, it's well, a, it's well, a lovely, well. it's a lovely quirky story. But is there really Ken. any significance to there's the fact only that a Mayo supporter scratched Mayo for Sam into into something, even if it was a two euro coin? Ken, there's only one way to find out. Go to the Blue Cafe in Arklow. Talk mm. to Liz Meehan there. Yeah, You'll yeah. find out all the information you need Trash to know. Out. Get a lovely big blue breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, come on now. That's too, we're taking it too far Coming now. up later today. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. What are you doing down here, you Johnny man? Well, Liverpool's title charge has the momentum of uh, runaway freight train. That's usually what we talk about. Manchester City, of course, have games in hand and are probably in a better position. And we but need to those isn't in. there a big Premier League fixture coming up? Liverpool unbeatable at home against Man City. No, oh well, that's yeah, that's that's. Uh, oh, it's there. It's towards yeah. the. It's coming over the horizon. It is. It is. Uh, we're going to talk a bit about about uh, Liverpool's former Tony Barrett, and we're going to talk also about the Nations League, which is the exciting new uh, competition that UEFA has established to replace international friendlies. I saw one of the. Uh, or at br- least replace a lot of international. I saw friendlies. one of the British football journalists tweeting about this. Apologies for not. 
remember Matt Dickinson? I think it was Matt Dickinson saying, I've just read the press release about this new Nations League and I have a headache. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> it he, looks kind of complicated was, and dull. He was saying he had to, yeah. It's not really that, that complicated. You know, I mean, what's hard to think through is the implications of it for other competitions, like, say, for the European qualifiers. Should we explain briefly what it is here? Well, basically, what UEFA decided is that since everybody has agreed they hate international friendlies and is always moaning about them, Mm -hmm. why not have replaced those international friendlies or on the dates? You've got a certain number of dates set aside for international friendlies. Why not have a kind of a competition where you get all the countries in UEFA, you group them into four leagues depending on their ranking. So, you know, mm. one, you've got England, Germany, Italy, Spain. Then, you know, you've got uh, and so on and so forth. And Ireland are in, I don't know, maybe maybe the third league. Mm. And each league then is split into four pools of three or four teams. And you know, little groups, little pools. And those uh, teams play each other home and away in September, October, November 2018. And then there's a finals tournament. So the winner of each pool... These are all still friendly matches, though. No, they're not. Oh, sorry. Because at the end of it is a European uh, a Euro- European Championships qualifying spot. Oh. So for, for the winner, basically each league will produce a team that will, quali- that will get an automatic qualification for the Euros. Um, each league split into four pools teams in the pools play each other, the winner of each pool advanced to a little tournament which is played at a neutral venue, semi-finals and a final and the winner gets to go to the Euros. So okay. see there is a point to all this mm. at the end. That's that's UEFA's Well we'll talk about that. Thinking. And Gus Poye who had some interesting things to say in the run up to the Liverpool game essentially saying that Luis Suarez is the one variable in the Premier League whoever he plays for wins, wins. the league. That's, that's, <laughs> so that's really much an interesting one. Saying, yeah. We'll uh, get to all other factors in any way any of those teams are run is completely irrelevant. But we're joined now by Steve James and delighted to say director of Head Games the Global Concussion Crisis. Steve it's great to talk to you. Yeah, great to talk to you. Can I ask you when did you first become interested in what is a fascinating subject? When did you first become interested in concussion? Well, I became interested in it because I'm a sports fan and it and when it really started to become an issue uh here in the states with the National Football League it was inescapable uh to to read about and hear about uh but it took a while um and part of what the film details is that battle that was led by Chris Nowinski to make the National Football League here um really take notice of this issue pay attention to this issue and begin to try to do something about it. What was the aim then of your documentary? Because as you say, that a part of it was to document what the battle has been, but was there more to your thinking than just documenting what has happened in the past? Yes. Well, you know, originally when I got interested and involved with this film, it, it, it was, and still is to some degree, uh, to be based on Chris's book called Head Games, mm. in which he detailed his his own history of concussions, which led him to um, become basically an activist over this issue, take on the NFL and other sports leagues. And that was going to be the focus of the film. And in fact, we did an American version of the film, which, which is more of that and focused more on American you know, contact sports. But when we showed the film in Europe at a film festival, we were approached by a... Uh, a very socially minded uh, individual with resources who said, um, uh, you know, I love this film. There's not nearly the awareness here in Europe and elsewhere in the world 
to this issue that there is in the States, but this film is too American. And, and it was really him, Tony Tabatsnik, who became one of our executive producers, who really spurred and helped to fund the making of this latest version, which is the one that, that you're talking about, we're talking about today, which really then encompassed rugby and soccer to a greater extent. And, and my goal all along, you know, was to really try to do a broad enough survey of what a concussions are, what the issues are, what the obstacles have been to dealing with this, but then to eventually bring the story down to the youth level, to the amateur level where parents and young athletes can hopefully get something from it. Yeah, and it's hugely accessible, certainly to an Irish audience, Steve, because part of the movie shot during the Six Nations game last year, the game that we drew yes. against France, um, Brian yes. O'Driscoll got what certainly appeared to be a concussion during that one. And one of your contributors is Dr. Barry O'Driscoll. We've talked a bit about some of his concerns around how the IRB deal with concussions. An interesting quote from him about O'Driscoll, who came off during that game and then came back on. He says he came back because of the state of the game, not the state of his brain. Was that footage of the O'Driscoll incident, was that something that as you were shooting, you realized, well, this is exactly the kind of thing we want to talk about here? Absolutely. Well, you know, what, what was interesting was, is that we, um, when we were there to film, we, uh, we filmed the Scotland-Wales game. We were at that game. We filmed it. Um, and then it was only a day or so later. And then we interviewed Barry. And then it was only a day or so later, while we were still over there, that we were we were sitting in the hotel watching the uh, Ireland-France game on television, and we saw um, we saw Brian's injury, and we saw him come off, and then we saw him come back on uh, when France tied up the score, and we realized we were seeing precisely what Barry had been talking about uh, and worrying about happen. And so we then set about to incorporate that into the film as well. And we, we, we interviewed Barry again further down the road when he was in a position to speak more candidly about his, his nephew. Specifically, he, uh, Barry O'Driscoll, this is, talks about this five-minute protocol that has recently been introduced by the IRB who have defended it vigorously. Dr. Barry O'Driscoll, well, he resigned over the matter because he feels that it doesn't give due consideration to the the issue at hand. What did you find when arriving and filming in this part of the world about, if we stick to rugby for the time being, about the understanding? Was it as was suggested to you, and is it a case that rugby is a long way behind the NFL who finally got their house in order and have started to understand the problem? Yeah, well, first of all, it, 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 it must be said that the NFL has come a great distance in the last um, several years. They still have a great way to go yet. And college football here um, is really hasn't done much of anything about this issue in any kind of coordinated way. So there's still a lot of work to be done here in the States. But it's also true, I think, fundamentally, because Chris Nowinski and then Alan Schwartz of The New York Times and some others who were very active on this issue, uh, because this battle began here back in 2006, um, that we are, in fact, far ahead of the rest of the world in terms of this issue. And I think what's going on with rugby now there in Europe um, and in Australia uh, is basically where the NFL was about six years ago, which is 
they are they have been resistant they have said a lot of pretty ridiculous things and 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 put in practice some pretty ridiculous policies <laughs> but they're now i think because of the overwhelming evidence um and the press has gotten on this and and people like Barry uh and Willie Stewart uh there in in Edinburgh um that the the you know the rugby folks are now beginning i think to change but of course there's a long way to go am i right in thinking that a lot of the players you encountered or some of the people that you talked to about this who are actually playing the game are actually a bit unclear as to what a concussion actually is absolutely it's true here and there i mean we we interview a young player there a 20 year old player um when we were over there and he talked about how he regularly would, you know, see stars uh, just about, you know, if not every game, certainly every other game. It was just a fact of life playing the game. He had no understanding that that indeed is a symptom of a concussion. And so, I mean, the, you know, all you have to do, and I'm not an expert on rugby at all, just being at that very first game I saw in person, uh, it was clearly evident that this is a sport that, you know, uh, does damage to the brain. I mean, these guys, huge guys, I mean, NFL football size guys are banging into each other without any padding or protection. Uh, and you know, it's, it's plainly obvious to anyone really, uh, looking at this, that there's a real danger here. I was a little bit more surprised, I must say, at the prominence of soccer in the movie that there was such an issue I mean, I, even as kids i guess yes. we would have been told playing soccer there, there, this idea did go around that you had the ball a lot and it you know it kills brain cells and these kind of things it, 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 this was kind of thrown around when you were a child but nobody ever thought about it in any sort of serious way uh, is there a genuine issue with regards to the playing of soccer well i think there absolutely is and i think it is scary because we don't think of soccer as a as a you know a particularly big contact sport i mean obviously there's contact in soccer guys are battling for position and and over the ball but we we don't think of it as pretty much damaging to the the head except when guys uh unfortunately bang heads in in the air when they're both trying to head the ball or or a head hitting the ground when someone falls you know, so we don't think of it in the same way we would think of rugby or, or American football. But um, I think one of the things that some recent studies have shown is is that the the just the sheer act of heading a soccer ball um, can cause problems. And and one of the things we found anecdotally, and this is in the film, is that after someone has suffered a real concussion of sorts, and it might have come from banging their head on the ground or banging the head of another player, once you've suffered a serious concussion your threshold for further concussion seems to be lower. So that if heading the soccer ball did not cause a problem prior to that incident, then after that incident, it starts to become a problem. And, you know, I think what Chris Nowinski and others who are, who are trying to affect change here are saying is they're not saying, you know, we need to stop, take heading out of soccer, but we really do need to look at the amount of heading that goes on in practice. Younger, um, Younger players uh, do not have the musculature of support of the neck uh, to the head that, that adults do. And so they are at even greater risk at concussions because we have this perception that concussions are caused by the impact on the head. Actually, you can have an impact on your head that won't cause a concussion at all if you're braced for it. It's really the whiplash effect of a concussion, not the actual physical contact 
it's the whiplash of the head that causes the concussion because it's the brain swishing around inside the skull that that is that really does the damage and i think most people especially athletes don't have an understanding of that so they don't, they don't imagine that if their head gets whiplashed and they didn't really make any real serious physical contact that it couldn't possibly be a concussion on the soccer it still seems just by its nature compared to say the nfl i'd be staggered to think that and i don't know if you are actually comparing it to the nfl are we are we talking about it in those kind of uh, in that kind of a context well, I don't know. I don't think we're saying that that your chances of of concussions are the same as in a football, uh, you know, American football or, or or rugby. But it's a different kind of contact that is problematic. And and again, you know, in any kind of sport, you can't rule out the possibility that someone's going to fall and crack their head, right? Even if it's not a sport that's <laughs> designed to make you do that. Um, but I think in soccer, the, the area that really needs to be, be investigated more than anything is the heading to really understand. Because in in the science right now, there and we talk about it some in the film, there is also a focus in the research on what's known as subconcussive blows. And by that, those are blows to the head that don't rise to the threshold of what we have sort of scientifically defined as being a concussion. So, you know, for instance, if a if a 100G force blow to the head is a concussion, um, that's the threshold. Well, what does a 98 or 99 or 90G uh, blow to the head do to your brain? You know, and, and there's a lot of research going on there. I mean, a big part of this is we don't know enough. There's a lot of research going on now around the world. This has become an important issue, which is great. And, you know, in a few years and in five years and in certainly in 10 years, we will know a hell of a lot more about this and I think be in a better place to safeguard athletes when they play these sports. But in the interim, we know enough, I think, and this is Chris's position, we know enough to take some safeguards now that, that can at least give us a much better uh, opportunity to protect athletes, particularly at those younger ages. And there's no reason not to put these in place now. Yes, um, it certainly seems it definitely needs to be looked into. I'm wondering if you had any negative reaction from from parents of kids because one reading or one viewing of the movie, uh, one way of interpreting it is as a parent would be that the implication is there that if you are allowing your kid to head the ball all the time or if you are allowing them to play, uh, I think it's peewee football as it's called, over in the States, that you're a bad parent, that you're not really safeguarding their health. Well, I think we try in the film to not take that position. And in fact, that's why I think we include the views of parents in the film, including, for instance, like Keith Primo, who was a great uh, hockey player here from Canada and whose sons play hockey. His daughter plays lacrosse. And he talks about that, that all three of them uh, have suffered a concussion, but he's still letting them play. And he's trying to do it in a responsible way way. I think what we try to articulate in the film is, is that it is a dilemma for parents because on the one hand, they don't want to take away these sports that their children love and that they often themselves love. On the other hand, and, and they also don't want to coddle their children to a degree that, they, that you know, you, can, you can't, can't keep them inside all day and run with no risks of anything in life. I mean, that's, that's you know, that, that's not going to work. But on the other hand, they are concerned. And so 
they're concerned and they, they want to be responsible parents and they want to protect their children. So I think it's a really difficult time right now to be a parent of a young athlete playing in some of these sports because, like I said earlier, there's so we don't know enough, um, but we do know enough that, that we need to do something about it. Something I found fascinating about your movie, Steve, is this. It's funny because the whole concussion issue jumped into people's consciousness on a number of occasions, certainly into mine. A lot of the time when it did that, it was because you heard these horror stories, these true stories of athletes who had died and their brains are then examined. And you talk a little bit about this in the documentary and uh, the, the evidence is there of degenerative brain diseases caused by concussion. But those athletes was unfortunately too late to actually tell their stories as such or to talk to them about it. Whereas you have guys, we've got an Aussie rules player, for example, called Greg Williams, who presents very much the the living and the, the very human side, I think, of of concussion and of the damage that can be done. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important uh, that that athletes, you know, do speak up on this, particularly uh, the retired athletes who are in, encountering this. You know, I think that's one of the things that's so pernicious about CTE, um, which is that, you know, you can have a long playing career and you can even have a post-playing career of a decade or more uh, where everything seems fine, um, you know, where you might um, every, you, you might look at your uh, experience having played the sport and think, well, I got through that and I'm going to be fine. And it's only when you start to get into your late 40s and 50s that the problems start to crop up and the memory issues start to come and the anger control starts to come. And I think that's one of the things that's so pernicious about it. The other thing is, is that I think that we're going to find that this disease of CTE related to concussion has been hiding under other diseases for many years, that when we thought someone had Alzheimer's, they may have actually had CTE or Parkinson's and they may have had CTE or just regular dementia, it might have been CTE. So, you know, I think as we go along, we're going to learn the, the, the actual breadth of this disease. And, and our hope, anybody's hope who, who cares about this, is is that we're also going to discover the limits of it that it that it's that you know that it isn't something that you are sort of preordained to have just because you played contact sports are some of those scenes and hopefully a lot of people will watch this movie because uh, we would definitely recommend that people have a look and, and judge for themselves but some of those scenes are difficult to watch. For example, Williams is one of the players I talk about there and the memory loss is plain to see without giving away too much about the specifics of what he talks about. Are they difficult scenes to film when you're when it's that personal, when it's a man and his wife who have clearly been going been having very serious issues based on 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 the man's health, I guess. Are they difficult scenes to film? Yeah, well, yeah, anytime you're encountering someone who's struggling in that way, no matter what the issue or illness, uh, yeah, it's certainly hard. But that's why that's why I think, you know, the courage really is in the people who step forward and say, this is what I'm going through. And and I think that's the kind of thing that really is eye opening for um, for the viewer, um, because you you really do you get a whole different perspective on it. Uh, than you would if you if you're just looking at a brain um, that's been dissected and and those images though <laughs> can be quite amazing. I mean, Tizza Taylor, this you know famous uh, player who who died of dementia, um, 
his brain is the first rugby brain officially to be designated having CTE. When you see that brain dissected and you see the amount of damage to that brain, even if you know nothing about brains, you can't possibly not look at that and understand the level of damage that that man sustained. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the documentary is called Head Games, A Global Concussion Crisis. Steve James, great to talk to you on the show. Thanks so much. Great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. If you want to have a look at the film, you just go to headgamesthefilm.com. That's the website there, headgamesthefilm.com, and you can watch it. You have to pay six US dollars to watch that one online. I think it's certainly worth doing it to get a, a better understanding, as I mentioned earlier on, probably of the human side as much as the, the medical side of this story. Just on the soccer issue, Ken, there was a piece by Daniel Taylor over the weekend in The Guardian about Jeff Astle, mm. who obviously pops into our heads when we're talking about this kind of thing. It's 12 years after he died of brain trauma. I think it was, uh, as Daniel Taylor talks about it, uh, industrial disease is what the coroner found, which was dementia brought on by repeatedly heading the ball. The FA at the time promised the family of Jeff Assel, and I think the PFA were involved in this promise as well, that it would be looked into, that there would be massive studies done on the entire uh, topic. And the family don't seem massively happy that this hasn't come to fruition. There's been nothing from the FA on it. Yeah, well, Greg Dyke, the FA chairman, who obviously wasn't the chairman at the time when that um, investigation was promised, has written to the widow of Jeff Hassel to apologise and to say that he does intend to look into this. Um, the Daniel Taylor piece was interesting. I mean, it was it's it's very sad to read about Jeff Hassel, but there was a, there was a um, mention of a study by the Albert Einstein's Gris Magnetic Resonance Research Centre. Mm-hmm. Uh, in New York, the finding uh, of this study was that players in their 30s who headed the ball 885 to 1,550 times a year had significantly lower water movement in three areas of the brain. Players with more than 1,800 headers a year tend to do notably worse in memory tests. That's not many headers. Like, that's, you know, I mean, 885 to 1,550 is like two to five a day, roughly. No? More than 800 a year is, what's that, five, five a day? Well, headers, five headers a day? More than 800 a 1,800, sorry, 1,800. 1,800, yeah, it's like five or six five, headers a day. Five headers a day. Yeah. That's not a lot. No. I mean, how many times would you head the ball if you're you know, if you were practicing heading and training? Yeah. Many times, okay. It's not a problem Robert Pires is ever going to have, but, you know, imagine a lot of players looking at that and thinking, Jesus. It can depend on the type of player you are. The, the, one of the con- con- contributors to the Steve James documentary was a female soccer player for the US who had to retire a few years back because of concussion issues she was facing and she said look I'm six foot six foot one hmm. I'm very tall in the women's game even if I didn't want to head the ball <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm, I have to head the ball and tall players in all sports find this thing so she was talking about having to head a lot and she's had, she had serious issues If she, she wasn't sure how to define a concussion but by the film's definition of one she said triple figures more than a hundred happens all the time that's really not um, so on I mean, the, obviously in football they're saying, well, the balls are lighter now. And that is true. I mean, when Jeff Astle was playing, you had a leather ball which absorbed water, often became much heavier during a, ma- during a match than it was at the outset. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, clearly now that doesn't really happen. The ball is, usually stays the same weight and it is a little bit lighter. And, and maybe that reduces the danger to some extent. But, you know, if we're talking about 1,800 times a year beginning to cause some issues. That's, that's really not a, not a big number. As I was saying to Steve, I, it just, I don't think, and he didn't say that you would equate 
the issue in soccer to what happened in the NFL in terms of the scale of what's been going on. Well, it's, 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 it's obviously American completely football. different because it's, football is not a collision sport. Yeah. You're not talking about, I mean, what you're talking about is the ball colliding with your head. And, and that's usually in a, in a way where you're braced for the impact. You know, you're prepared for, it's not, it's not a question of, you know, as in boxing, a punch catching you off, off guard and the, the twisting of the head. Or in rugby or NFL where you've got slamming into, guys slamming into each other with huge forces. It's not. It's not like that. Concussion is not uh, in rugby and NFL. Concussion is part of the game. Where there is something to be learned from the NFL, though, it is for FIFA and for the IRB. And I know that all. I haven't heard FIFA say much about this subject, but the IRB think they have it right now. Clearly, people like Dr. Barry O'Driscoll don't think they have it right at all. These associations really need to heed the lessons of what happened in the NFL, who denied the existence of the. Uh, of any problems yeah. related to so many years. That now. Well, they won't, but I don't. I, have FIFA confronted? I don't think so. It is mentioned in the movie that it seems like they're a long, long way behind. Mm. And if, if if the FAA have taken 12 years and still haven't produced this report and don't seem to have done there's an apology yeah. now, that's great, but there's still no more information coming out from them. I think governing bodies probably should be getting on top of it. It's the kind of thing that there could be serious damage limitation done now by them if yeah. they get on top of it rather than facing potential legal issues down the line. But... I think we're pretty much out of time for today. Kieran. thank you very much. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Kieran, And yeah, thank you, so Owen. Much. Do listen to Second Captains Football a little bit later on today. You can follow us on Twitter at secondcaptains and facebook.com forward slash secondcaptains. Take care. What time is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. 